a Radio 191 FM podcast. Globally, scientists' access to public grant funding is ultra-competitive. But as Otago Business School Associate Professor Connor O'Kane argues, the competition to effectively meet funding criteria means that scientists are pressured to play it safe with research proposals. Recently published research from O'Kane shows that hyper-competition for public grant funding can compromise the value created from successfully funded research. Uh, Joining me now to talk about the issues with scientific research funding is Associate Professor O'Kane. G'day, Connor, are you there? Kia how how are you? Hi, good, thanks. Connor, uh, public grant funding is notoriously hyper-competitive with success rates sometimes lower than 10%. What does this mean for scientists looking for funding? Are Are they needing to pander to the priorities of the funding body as opposed to pursuing their own research interests? Yeah, so, well, obviously competition competition is a good thing and, and, and typically drives up quality. So we're, we're not for a second knocking the competition or the importance of competition. Um, our point is just that from the supply side, when, there, when there's limited funding, so it's not your typical industry, maybe in a business sense, um, when there's limited funding and there's huge demand for that funding, then the, the hyper-competition... Um, can have a, a maybe a, a, a darker side or lead to some unintended side effects. And, and and what are some of these side effects? Could you go into that? Yeah, sure, no problem. Look, so what's happening is that so if you just take the basis of competition, when 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 there's a when there's a limit to how we can compete. So again, if you just take it to a business sense, you know, in, in um, industries where you can reshape industry boundaries by innovating and differentiating and other things like that. that that's all well and good. You, you can create new demand. But when the, the bases of competition are quite rigid, which they are in, a, in, a, in, the, in the funding sense, then people can't just go away and compete in whatever way they want. They can't come up with these wacky ideas or form these kind of wacky research teams with, that don't have any logic or make any sense. They have to compete in a pretty similar way and as I said that can be good can drive up quality because now we have some structure to the grant applications that are coming in but our point is that there's a ceiling then to how you compete and that ceiling then leads to an overconformance to the criteria so the overconformance then starts to knock the creativity can lead to shorter term research and can lead to, you know, really difficult conditions for really bright people, but who maybe just don't have the experience and the track record yet. Right, so there's there's this kind of hierarchy that's being reinforced when, when you know, uh, up-and-coming researchers aren't getting the same kind of opportunities as those more established with kind of, you know, higher-profile names. Is that right? Uh, yeah, 100%. So most funding programs will have the emerging research like um, particular streams of um, competition for emerging researchers, but in the in, in the in the more mainstream funding programs, exactly what you say is exactly right. Um, you know, we 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 have that and findings from people who've submitted grants and people who've reviewed grants, where when they're looking at grant applications and it gets down to their really close calls, they look at something and go, "Hey, look, will we give it to this professor and she can, you know, we know what she can do?" Or this is a really great idea, but it's been led by someone who hasn't really done all that much before. And mm. 
you know, you're looking at public money and you're looking for a return on investment and that can actually then just tip people more towards the, the cautious side. So there's actually a, a phenomenon called a false investigator. So this is a, an international um, thing, so it's not just New Zealand. So the false investigator is exactly that. It's, so you can imagine a grant comes to your, grant comes onto the evaluation committee's table and the false investigator phenomenon means that some big heavy hitters, some international players, um, might be at the forefront, but it actually isn't their idea, and mm. it's not really clear how they will contribute to the research, mm. but straight away when their name is there, it's like, this has to be taken serious. Right, they're, they're just this figurehead that... that, that exactly. Right, just a face for the research. Yeah, so, exactly, and if you play that out then, then in subsequent funding rounds, that hierarchy is reinforced, mm. right? Mm. Because the person then who's doing the research is then communicating in the subsequent rounds that, you know, yeah, yeah, I have a previous grant, but I was fourth or fifth on it, mm. when it might have been actually their idea, right? Mm. Interesting. Uh, Connor, you mentioned that there's, uh, you know, uh, f- uh, financial kind of bias involved with this. There, there are funding bodies that are looking to get maybe a return to investment. Um, what I'm wondering is this, does this... You know, does this lead to researchers trying to promise funding bodies a certain kind of outcome to their research? And, and isn't this really unscientific? Great, yeah, that, that's, that's a really good question, actually, yeah. So this all has to be um, sort of the, the buzzword in any discipline in science at the minute is, you know, impact and translation. So this research has been done, but how is it going to translate into impact for a firm? for policy. Um, so you're, you're exactly right there. You know, in, in most funding programs um, now at the minute, you actually have to be very explicit around how what you're doing is going to result in some form of impact. And, um, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be too specific here, but you, you can imagine then how people are, are selling their research and if they're selling the outcome of the research and they, they, they can envision what it's going to end up like, then by extension to that, then how novel can it be in the first mm. instance, right? Mm. Mm. It, it seems just so in opposition of what science uh, is trying to just, you know, reaching out into the unknown and taking risk. And uh, it seems antithetical to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, and you, I think another thing that we would have found is that even though they, they might sell it like this in their actual grant application, a lot of frustrations then emerge when, say, they, say they're successful, say they get the money, and then they start the research, and then in year two or three, the re- new insights are completely, um, completely new insights or exploratory lines emerge, and we're like, oh, we never thought of this. And then they can't really pursue those lines because they have, they have, communicated or sold quite a structured program in their grant application that they have to stick to that, right? Mm. Um, and that, that goes against that goes against innovation in all sense, be it in science or, or in, in firms. Mm. Um, Connor, in a recent op-ed you wrote for Newsroom, um, you yep. used the example of uh, Catalin Carrico. Um, could, you, could you help explain to the listener what Catalin, uh, who, sh- who she is and how she's contributed to the scientific world, the medical world, uh, and what kind of uh, hiccups she encountered when um, trying to secure research funding Sorry for her research. 
Yeah, so Caitlin Kirko is a, um, a Hungarian scientist who, so who immigrated to the U.S. to um, pursue her career. And she is now, in you know, retrospect, known to be um, one of the key international leaders in um, the messenger RNA that underpins um, the Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccines. Um, and she was working on this um, long before it seemed relevant and was very much committed um, to this research. But when you're in a science role, so maybe not a salaried role, and you're dependent on soft money or bringing in grant money to fund uh, your your position, really, or to fund a lab, you have you're reliant on bringing in these grants, right? Um, and in her case, it's it's fascinating to know that she actually failed to get any uh, grants from the main um, health funder in the U.S. and and time and time again had to move from job to job and try and um, sell her ideas to more senior colleagues who would bring her in and maybe under another grant. Um, and, yeah, so it's just quite a fascinating story that, that that research that now is commonly regarded to underpin these vaccines that had a massive uh, societal impact across the world was unfunded. Mm. It, was, it was seen as, um, you know, uh, seen as too novel, mm. seen as what's the relevance, where's the impact, mm. um, and uh, yeah, and, and interestingly enough, not only from uh, we don't look at this in our research, but when she did actually have a breakthrough with, a, with one of her colleagues and turned it into a research paper, so a, a journal article, it was actually rejected from some journals. So it's not just the not just the, the funding, right? It's the whole scientific establishment in general. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it, 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 there can be some it can stifle novelty and creativity, right? Mm. And you'd have to uh, at this stage in her career. She would have fallen back into this, um, uh, you know, lack of reputation, lack of status. Mm, mm. Um, so the ideas would have been, hmm, why would we fund this for this person who hasn't really mm. proven themselves yet? Right, right. And and gosh, if only we had a time machine. If 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 if, the, if these people making these dis- fun- funding decisions could look back now and see this kind of huge pandemic we've gone through and how helpful <laughs> these uh, mRNA vaccines have been, I think that yeah, their funding decisions would have been quite different. Um, Connor, yeah. Connor, what's the solution um, to all this? How how can we ensure? that there is adequate resourcing for these kind of early stage and high-risk and novel uh, research proposals? Yeah, well, in terms of the... So there's there's huge pressures in the whole system, right? So universities are are under financial pressure, and they're putting pressure on their scientists to bring in money, and then scientists are then selling themselves to, to funding bodies and playing the game in terms of being more conservative, and then the evaluating side... Are, oh, we need to make sure that we don't waste money. So there's a lot of pressures mm-hmm. in the system. But like, if you take a fundamentally kind of even a, a venture capitalist or a type approach, you know, there's, there's a saying that you you need to invest in the losers to find the winners, right? Mm-hmm. So we need to move from this process of everything is going to be a huge success and impactful that we that we fund, and mm-hmm. um, we need to take some more risk. So in terms of the, the solutions, and in the very first instance. Governments and policymakers need to, like, they need to ensure that in their science system there is money put aside for high-risk, mm-hmm. novel, unorthodox type research that doesn't have an immediate output. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Second to say, and 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 that, that obviously money has to be made for for people who are not proven yet. Mm. So another thing is, do we invest in people and not ideas? So do we invest in capability, and do we kind of um, crowdsource ideas or projects and kind of get the best people and the best expertise to form novel projects. And the other thing, I guess, 
is, and it's been trialled in some places, is kind of lottery lottery type approaches. So right. once your grant is up to a certain standard and gets through a threshold, that we, you know, it, it's basically pulled out of a hat, a mm. lottery. Because, mm-hmm. we, you know, we would have insights where people would say, once you get into the top quartile of grants, so once you get into the, the top, you know, top 25% that, this, wow, this is good and this, I can't decide between these things, you could literally throw them in the air and pick 10. Mm. You know, so there are some, some things that can be done. Right, right, yes. Uh, a lottery would be a fascinating solution. Yeah, um, well, it's good to know there, there, is, there are things that can be done, how we can, um, you know, uh, kind of put value on, on, these, on these risky, and as you mentioned before, wacky kind of research, research that's yeah, a bit yeah. fringe. I, I was, yeah. was going to bring up, do, have you, are you familiar with the Ig Nobel Prize? No, it's 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 kind of like a, a satirical Nobel Prize that's awarded um, awarded to scientists who do really fringe and wacky research. Yeah. The, uh, the most recent yeah. award it it went to it went to someone who was researching the mating habits of constipated scorpions, and they and they won this huge financial prize, the Ig Nobel, Ig Nobel Prize. Um, it's quite a quite a cool idea, kind of shifting uh, the value away. I think away. I have heard of that. And there's, yeah, I think I have heard of that, actually. And there's another situation where in America, I think there's a day in Congress where people give out about wacky ideas there. Yeah. They're funded. It, yeah. Well, it's cool to celebrate, you know, the quirkier side of science um, yeah. as opposed to the really rigid, uh, well-established um, yeah, mainstream. And I, and I just would like to stress that, you know, I mean, the people who get these grants are brilliant people and the of science course. that's been done is brilliant. And all what... You know, so, you know, grants are high-status um, items for scientists and universities. What we're just pointing to is is that there is a cost to the success that, you know, it's, it's very clear to us through our findings and reading the research that people do make sacrifices in what they would do and when they would do it and how they would structure it in order to get the money. This was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.